be a good human being is to have a kind of openness to the world, an ability to trust uncertain things and to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 168 of Embrace the Void, where we avoid stereotyping generalizations by staying extremely meta. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking about the history of female philosophers. So, let's undercut some assumptions. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guests this week are Rebecca Buxton and Lisa Whiting, the minds behind my favorite philosophy book of the year, Philosopher Queens. Would y'all love to say hi to the void? Hello. Hello, void. (laughs) Thank y'all so much for coming on to chat about this and taking the time out of your otherwise perfectly normal and fairly straightforward semesters. (laughs) No, well, thank you so much. You're... The first person who's called it their favorite philosophy book of the year, I think. So that's very flattering. Oh, it's a great book. And I'm so happy to pitch it because I think it's a good book for anyone at pretty much every level of philosophy, whether you're a teacher uh, or, you know, trying to get your young children interested in philosophy. I think it it works so well on a variety of different levels. So I really appreciate that y'all have put this together. Before we talk about the book, do you want to let folks know a little bit about sort of your backgrounds and interests, philosophically speaking? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I studied philosophy at university um, up in Durham. Rebecca and I actually met in high school. um, So we go quite a way back. And then once completing my philosophy undergraduate degree, um, I started working in public policy, um, but with studying kind of alongside that. So my interests um, within political philosophy around kind of power and kind of egalitarianism, and then obviously clearly feminism as well. Yeah, mine, I'm a bit of a philosophical mess, I think. Um, <laughs> so, so I did, I did um, philosophy at King's for my undergrad um, and was really interested in epistemology and philosophy of mind. Um, I then uh, decided that I wanted to do a proper degree <laughs> and something that would sort of help me um, to, you know, help the world. So I came to Oxford and did a master's in refugee and forced migration studies quickly Mm -hmm. figured out that that wasn't going to help me to get a job (laughs) um and that I still really loved doing philosophy um so I had a year off and worked in the Houses of Parliament for a while I tried having a real job and then I've come back to do my DPhil um and now I work sort of at the intersections of political philosophy political theory and refugee studies so my my work is on the political rights of refugees and where they have them. Um, and I'm just about writing up my PhD. So we'll see if it we'll see if it makes sense at the end. 
<laughs> well, well, certainly good luck with that. I'm, I'm curious, how did y'all end up crossing paths while engaged in all these projects? Me and Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> we, so this is my favorite story. So Lisa, <laughs> Lisa and I met in year, I was in year 11. So we went to the same high school. And here you finish high school at 16. So I was 16 and Lisa was 15. And we met in a high school production of The Wizard of Oz in which I was the scarecrow and Lisa played one of my three crows. And her job, along with the other two crows, was to just follow me around um, during the whole play and like throw things at me, laugh at me, um, be basically be horrible to me for the entire thing. So that's how that's how it started. <laughs> Yeah, and then we went on to study uh, philosophy A-level together. Um, we actually, neither of us were planning to study it, but we kind of stumbled into a taster class. Um, and our teacher at the time um, was explaining the trolley problem. And we got quite exercised about it and realised that actually maybe we should should study it. And through that became better friends um, and have been really good friends since. Lisa, were you in the philosophy class, like heckling her in the crow voice? Was it... <laughs> Sadly yes. not. But, <laughs> um, I feel like we heckled each other through our dialogues, um, philosophically, <laughs> angry crow noises. Yeah. I didn't realize we were going to get a musical origin story. That was that was an yeah. exciting bonus it to was. toss in here. We, we also did music together, did A level oh, together, wow. and so we were. That was mostly what we did together, and then it transitioned from like singing doing things around the piano in a group to you know shouting at each other about plato and um, uh -huh. so yeah it's a big transition i think that's great so i have an important philosophical warm-up question before we get into the details of the book this comes ripped from the pages of wall street journal i'm curious if right you could uplift one non-human animal species so that they could join philosophy departments which species would it be? <laughs> wow. Um, Lisa, you go first. Oh, goodness. That is a very surprisingly philosophically difficult question. I think I'm going to go with owls because I'd be intrigued to know mm. whether their status as a wise animal actually bears out in reality. Mm. <laughs> um, my, so I was talking to my partner about this question. And I think I would pick parrots because hmm. they, so I also would pick a bird mm -hmm. because they're able to learn words. They could feasibly give lectures, I think, maybe very short ones. Mm -hmm. But so it depends whether you're looking for them to take on sort of research uh, roles or teaching roles. Um, so you would uplift different animals for different sorts of uh, educational I think, exploitation, I understand. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this, this is the this is obviously in response to the cat mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, interesting that neither of y'all <laughs> cat picked thing. cats for some reason. No, I, you know, if you'd asked me before I saw the cat book, I might have picked cats. Um, but because it annoyed me, I now don't want to choose cats. <laughs> I'm also surprised neither of you picked the objectively correct answer, which is red pandas. Um, that's, yeah. It's okay. I don't. I'm not judging your answers. They're both interesting. They're just not the right, <laughs> obviously right answer. Um, here's. I mean, the philosophical question for me there is: if you uplift them, 
how do you know that they're still going to be the same insightful entities that they were before you uplifted them, right? You've just ruined them with, like, anxiety and a bunch of stuff. So, like, are they then just going to be like us but furrier? Yeah, well, we keep making this point in other interviews that lots of really interesting philosophy happens outside the academy. So maybe (laughs) it would be better for them to keep doing their philosophy but not in philosophy departments. That's a very Taoist way to put it, right? They should stay out there in the mud doing their philosophy. I think that's a good point. So let's talk about the book. Is there an inciting incident of some sort that inspired this book? Was there like a specific sausage fest, great men of philosophy article that really like just pushed you over the edge? There, there actually kind of is, um, which I feel like helps in situations like this. So I had some kind of annual leave, some holiday to take from work. Um, and at the time I was working for um, actually a, a regulator called the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. So it was the government regulator for fertility and embryo research, which was actually set up by a really interesting woman called Mary Warnock, who's actually in the book, who was a philosopher who essentially was brought in at the time to think about what should happen uh, when IVF first became a thing. So she did um, a lot of kind of public engagement work about um, biomedical ethics. Uh, I thought she was a really interesting woman. Um, And I made me realise I didn't really know anything about any other women philosophers and I didn't really study any at my undergrad. So I went into a bookshop to try and find a book about women philosophers and was just horrified to find that there was no introductory collections. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a few books on individual women, um, the kind of people you'd probably expect. So Hannah Arendt, Simone de Beauvoir. Um, But there were a lot of books called The Greatest Philosophers. Um, And a quick glance over the pages, you will notice that there are rarely any women included in those books. Um, Maybe one will will make their way in and will represent the woman slot within the contents page. Um, Mm -hmm. But this really frustrated us. And also a lot of them were written by men as well. So we felt like there was just a bit of a gap. So I wrote a slightly sassy tweet saying, I'm going to make a book called The Greatest Philosophers, all of whom are women. Mm -hmm. And then Rebecca was the one that actually kind of push to actually insist that we we make it which is how we ended up where we are today it's great and it, it is a wonderful book it's a beautiful book too um it has some really gorgeous art in it and i want to talk about the art a little bit first and then we can talk about y'all's personal chapters that, that you wrote um i noticed in the book that y'all made the very bold choice to depict mary wollstonecraft as actually wearing clothes i'm curious <laughs> did y'all have like an aesthetic discussion about why you would make a choice like that yeah, we did think about making all of the chapters just like tiny silver naked women. And have, <laughs> so like Let's an be clear. woman. If you if you had made all of the pictures naked women, unfortunately, you probably would have sold more books. I'm not saying you should have done that. I'm just saying, right? Anyway, yes. yeah. <laughs> no, again, we. Um, I don't remember if we really had an aesthetic conversation about it. We were just, we were introduced to the illustrator, Emmy Smith, um, Mm -hmm. uh, through our publisher. Um, And we, as soon as we saw the other stuff that she'd done, we wanted her to do the book because the book, I mean, it, it says a little bit about what the book is for, is that we were trying to make something that academics would read Mm-hmm. Um, but also that people like who me and Lisa were when we were 16, they, they mm-hmm. would pick it up as well. So mm-hmm. it needed to be beautiful. Um, 
and it mm-hmm. for people to sort of give it to people as gifts and and for it to feel accessible because I think a lot of philosophy books um aren't exactly beautiful um mm-hmm. things to hold in your hand and so we really wanted to make sure that it it looked like it would be um something that everybody could sort of to but no none of them are naked which in in hindsight I think might have been a mistake I think it's probably also worth saying that Emmy's style the kind of illustrations that she'd done before were very mm-hmm. focused around kind of women from all different sizes races she really embraced the the idea of kind of women in their kind of full range of diversity and I think that's something that came out really beautifully we think at least in the mm-hmm. book um is trying to create illustrations of these women that really speak to their uniqueness to to suit the chapters which highlight um the unique lives that they all lived I, yeah i love them they're, they're these gorgeous portraits and they're all sort of sitting in these very respect like just yeah they're very beautifully done i don't want to uh belabor the point i think y'all I, like i just think it, it ties the whole thing together beautifully um since i did mention the statue i am curious do y'all have thoughts as philosophical women about the Wollstonecraft statue that you might care to share oh i really did oh yeah i mean see my twitter rant from four days ago um but yeah i i really didn't like the statue for lots mm-hmm. of reasons i mean lisa and i had a bit of a whatsapp rant about it when we when we first saw it um i think the main thing for me is you the well firstly the campaign was to get a statue of mary wollstonecraft which we don't have um because mm-hmm. the statue is for mary and it's like for people who haven't seen it <laughs> try it how, how do i do this in like a neutral way so that i don't set it up as a horrible statue it's like a silver blob <laughs> mm-hmm. uh with a tiny nude woman coming out of the top of it and that woman is meant to represent every woman now whatever the hell every woman is meant to be um is still up for question because this woman has abs and is very small and so every woman is meant to be small fit and naked those are the the features of every woman woman and silver made of silver (laughs) Silver, and (laughs) arising from a sort of blob wave um so yeah so i feel like we didn't get a statue of mary wollstonecraft which is very frustrating and also you would never depict you would never honor the life of a man with a tiny naked man statue representing every man. You just wouldn't do that. So no, you get a really large one like the David, right? Giant yeah. statue of a naked man. Yeah, well, at least that was two hundred years ago. So people mm-hmm. did point out to me like we did have a naked statue of a philosopher, and I'm like, yes, but not <laughs> like now. And um, I feel like the I don't know. The whole idea of it really frustrated me, but um, mm-hmm. so I'm still waiting for a statue of Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, I mean, just to say, I, I agree with Rebecca, and I think the extent to which it, the statue could have then almost been for so many other women, because so many other women obviously have been historically been feminists and, and fought for kind of women's rights and on women's issues. But I think what people wanted is something to kind of commemorate Mary Wollstonecraft like as an individual. And I think there's not much necessarily about the statue that is unique to the incredible mm-hmm. life that she lived. And I think 
it was a real missed opportunity, I think, to have something that would have actually raised the profile of Mary Wollstonecraft as a philosopher and the activist that she was, um, as opposed to a more abstract concept of mm-hmm. what I would argue a slightly kind of misguided notion of womanhood. Yeah, and it was it was interesting in my mind because it came sort of shortly after the discourse about that naked um, statue of Medusa that I don't know if y'all saw that come around and there was sort of a bunch of critiquing of that. And one of the main pretty much the only main difference I felt like between them was that that one was done by a guy and this one was done by a woman. Um, I don't know if you feel like that has any difference at all for you in terms of how you address these pieces of art. I I don't know. I I think it does make a little bit of a difference. I'd certainly be angrier if the Wollstonecraft she <laughs> was by a man. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think I think the thing is is that so she um, Hambloom the the um, artist was trying. So in in her defence when she was when she was sort of responding to critics, she said, well, I didn't want to, you know, just create another stuffy statue of somebody in Victorian dress standing on a plinth, but Mm -hmm. because that's too traditional. But of course it's very traditional for women to appear naked. Like it's nothing, Mm -hmm. it's nothing radical taking off her clothes. It's exactly how women have been portrayed in art throughout history. I mean, there's this really good essay who I terribly can't remember who it's by, called What is Wrong with the Female Nude, um, or something like that. Just screwed up the title entirely. But and and that kind of talks about what's what exactly is wrong with portraying women as naked and in particular is that it comes to be a symbol for the kinds of bodies that are perceived as beautiful and you know, women are only ever appreciated for their bodies and not for the the persons that they are underneath. And so that's why it was so frustrating for for Mary is we wanted her to be remembered as an individual person, not as kind of a amorphous any woman figure. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um so let's let's talk about the chapters that y'all wrote some in the book since not only did y'all edit it, but you did a, each did a chapter. Uh, Lisa, yours came first because you wrote about Hypatia, and of course Hypatia comes first. Um, As you highlighted in the chapter, none of Hypatia's original works actually survived. So can you explain some about how we can know that she is this valuable early philosopher in this way? Yeah, definitely. So so you're right that none of her, I guess, philosophical texts survives, but there are quite a lot of sources that documented her life um, in varying amounts of detail. And I think what's clear from a lot of those writings is she was clearly a very talented mathematician. So her father was a very famous mathematician and philosopher. Um, and actually, we do have evidence of some of the mathematical works that, that she edited, which does prompt some people to say she shouldn't be considered a philosopher. She should just be considered a um, a mathematician instead. But actually, if you look at some of the sources that do document her life, they're very clear that she was considered a a philosopher. They refer to her as a philosopher. She was written letters addressed to, um, actually it's addressing to the philosopher. Um, She was so um, considered under that title. And in particular, there's a lot of writing about the teaching that she undertook and the philosophical lectures that she gave. And I think this ties to an interesting question more broadly about what is it about philosophy that we value and what does it mean to be a philosopher? 
But I think through her life, there's definitely a sense of how she considered her philosophy to be. So she was very concerned with practical wisdom and people would often go to her to ask her questions and advice about various kind of more important political topics. So in a sense, I feel like her life is maybe more similar to that of someone like Socrates, who was considered this public figure who engaged in these dialogues and people sent their students really long distances to be taught by her. So whilst I don't think she is considered a philosopher in the traditional sense in some ways, because there's not a specific text that you could read to understand, for example, her worldview, but I think the fact that she was so revered by her contemporaries um, is still important, I think, particularly of a woman of such an early period. Um, mm. And it, it may well have been that she did write philosophical works, but they didn't survive. So I think there is something important in still ascribing her that title to make it clear that there were women during her period who were conducting philosophical work. So, so in a sense, she was one of the first like public philosopher, public intellectual types in that way. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's a wonderful quote um, referring to her putting on the philosopher's cloak and walking out into the square, and she was definitely considered a public intellectual and was revered for that role that she took. That's really interesting. And and as uh, folks working in the public intellectual world. Uh, one of the things I thought was the most amusing and like relevant to our modern times in, in your discussions about her was how she had her own very impressive ways of dealing with reply guys. Do you want to talk <laughs> a little bit maybe about her groundbreaking philosophical work in coping with reply guys? Yes, this is one of my favorite stories of her. And it's actually an anecdote that comes directly from one of the, the kind of primary sources about her life. So we have quite good evidence to believe that this did actually happen. So most of the students she taught were males. Um, and whilst some of the evidence suggests that she was uh, single and a virgin for her whole life, they didn't stop quite a lot of her students falling madly in love with her. So there was one student that was particularly persistent um, in his affections. And to begin with, she would try to bore him by playing music for long periods of time. Uh, but unfortunately, that, that didn't work. So she had to escalate this. And there's a story about him coming to her one day saying, that kind of professing his, his love and affections. And she, quote, pulls out a menstrual rag um, and waves it in his face to say that actually, if this is what he loves, this is not beautiful. Um, and apparently he was turned away by the horrible sight. Um, and clearly, I think that put an end to his, his attempts um, at uh, trying to, to try to move her. So, yeah, a lesson for, for all of us. Yeah. And, and if that doesn't, if stories like that don't convince you to buy the book, I don't even know why you're here. Um, yeah, that's, I mean... What what an uh, uh, insufficient simp I think is probably the most uh, the first response I have right if you're genuinely committed to your philosopher <laughs> queen a little bit of menstrual blood is going to hold you back that's that's just not <laughs> impressive to me is what I'm saying. Um, so on the other side of the world unfortunately in her stories that one that one being particularly entertaining the other part that I picked up from reading your chapter and like genuinely did not know this reading the stories is that she has a particularly um significant death um and it's you know every i think you know freshman philosopher learns the story of socrates death as this sort of model of of death in the in the service of philosophy and i just think it's fascinating that none of us hear this story uh do you want to share and and we'll say content warning for uh violence um do you want to share sort of what happened to Hypatia and why it matters uh, for the history of philosophy? 
Yeah, definitely. So I actually think the comparison to Socrates is is really interesting because, as I mentioned before, she was considered very wise. And despite the fact that she was a pagan um, and actually at the time, um, Alexandria was predominantly um, a combination of kind of Jews and Christians. Um, she actually had a wide range of, of friends, um, some of which were quite high powered. Um, so she was very good friends with the Pope of Alexandria. And he died um, and essentially following his death, there was a quite significant contestation over who should take over that role. And one of the people in the mix was this man called Orestes, who was friends with Hypatia. And she would counsel him and essentially try to give him advice about how to restore kind of civility um, to the city. But one of his opponents was this man called Cyril. Um, and he, there's a, still an ongoing debate about the extent to which he orchestrated um, her death. But essentially, there was a perception amongst some people that she was the reason why these two men weren't reconciling and why Cyril wasn't able to take over um, from the previous pope. So she was actually, uh, she was at a chariot one day and a mob of monks tore her from her carriage um, and incredibly brutally, um, essentially, tore her to pieces is the phrase that's used um, in the historical sources um, with a word that could either be translated as oyster shells or roof tiles. I don't think either would be Ugh. preferable. Um, and then her remains were kind of dragged through the city and set on fire. And this death, obviously so brutal, really did send shockwaves through the city because she was very well regarded. And it's interesting, I think it's an open question, the extent to which can her gender um, played a role in the reaction to that um, but it is a really harrowing story and really does highlight how significant the price she paid was for the public service that she was doing through her philosophical work. Yeah and it, you know talking about the gender connection here because I think we could ask of you know any of the the philosophers in your book how did gender sort of impact their philosophical career it's just one one thing of note to me in the contrast between Socrates not just that we all learn about Socrates and not Hypatia but that Socrates's death is so dignified and like controlled you know he's like mm. talking to his friends right up till the end and he gets to like drink the poison himself and like you know he's being loved and supported up to the end whereas Hypatia is literally dragged out into the street and ripped apart and I just mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious if you feel like that is is in, it seems to be symbolic of of the difference in the ways that we treat sort of male bodies and female bodies yeah I think that's really interesting and it's actually not something that I necessarily thought about but I do think there's something about Socrates story that's almost romanticized the mm -hmm. uh, like you said like the visual image of kind of him in this suicide type um, situation and like you say the kind of control to an extent that he has over that situation can compare to um, the literal like, mob violence that um, Hypatia did experience. I also think the gender aspect is quite interesting in looking at the, her legacy because mm -hmm. she is considered by some to be this martyr in, in philosophy but you certainly see in some of the texts that followed kind of discussing her life the extent to which she was either completely idealized and was mm. considered this like perfect 
woman, almost every woman, um, as previously described, but like this complete epitome of everything that is beautiful and perfect. But then you also had people that con conceived of her as being um, a witch. And there was an essay that was written <laughs> about her that referred to her as an imprudent, imprudent school mistress. Um, mm. So I think the extent to which Socrates largely was just considered a very kind of intelligent person who became the father of philosophy, the extent to which Hypatia's legacy is still the source of much debate, potentially because of the way in which a woman taking up that public role still potentially made some people feel uncomfortable, um, I think is also quite interesting. Kind of uh, like philosopher queen slash philosopher whore complex. Mm, yes, yes. Kind of a, a desire to categorize her into something um, that doesn't recognize clearly like the complexity of the life that she lived. That's really fascinating. Uh, so let's, um, uh, I think that's a lot of great stuff about Hypatia. Let's talk a little bit about Rebecca's chapter as well. Uh, Rebecca, you wrote on uh, Hannah Arendt and I, I tried really hard. I read the chapter and I tried to think about any way in which her work could in any way apply to the modern world. And I really, I came up short. Do you have any way to attach her work to like, make it relevant for us today, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Aaron is one of these sort of big philosophers of the moment. I mean, to, to begin, she'd be extremely angry that I call her a philosopher. Um, because Good. She, like all true she philosophers. Very explicitly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She very explicitly calls herself a political theorist um, and says that you can't really do philosophy about politics because you can't be, be neutral um, about politics. <laughs> And so, yeah, so, but I, I call her a philosopher because I disagree with this distinction between political philosophy and political theory. Um, so, but no doubt she'd be, you know, pissed with me for, for doing that. Mm. Um, but yeah, Aaron, Aaron um, so one way to explain how important she is now is on the day after Trump was elected in 2016, the origins of totalitarianism was basically sold out in mm. bookshops and was sold out on on amazon and everything else along with george orwell um and some other kinds of books that people thought would help them to understand the predicament that we're in at the moment and mm -hmm. in the origins of totalitarianism Arendt sort of explains the historical events that happened over the sort of 19th and 20th centuries that led to this crystallization of totalitarianism in um, Nazi Germany and in um, the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and in the most basic sense she basically argues that totalitarianism arises when people are disconnected from one another and that um, political movements bad political movements emerge when people aren't recognizing each other in a particular way or speaking to each other or thinking clearly mm. and so she says um she says like the perfect subject for totalitarianism isn't like the convinced Nazi or the communist, it's the unthinking person. And that in a totalitarian structure, the distinction between things like facts um, and fiction and truth and lies begin to break down. Um, so mm -hmm. it's quite easy to see the ways in which people, why people have been thinking with Hannah Arendt for the last um, four years. Um, and, and in fact, on the election night a couple of weeks ago, there was a live reading of the origins of totalitarianism going on um, mm -hmm. at the Hannah, Hannah Arendt Centre at Bard. Um, 
So yeah, so she's very relevant for today. And, and that's but there are lots of books like Why Read Hannah Arendt Now. There's another um, biography of her coming out. People really like Hannah Arendt at the moment. Yeah, and I want to hear a little bit about your take on her analysis of the rise of totalitarianism, if you feel like she's nailed it or not. But you just, you raised something really interesting there right at the beginning that I, as a philosopher, of course, I have to pick at about politics being not philosophy because philosophy has to, I guess, be done from a neutral perspective and politics can't be done. I mean, as an, as an ethicist, I always think of politics as just ethics at scale. So like I, there, I, I see no distinction, no real separation between, you know, ethical philosophy and political philosophy in that kind of way. And I'm curious, do you buy her distinction there or do you feel like, I mean, I would reject the notion that any philosophy is done impartially in the way that it seems like she's suggesting. Yeah, so I agree with you. I think the the idea that philosophy is done in a space of neutrality, I think, is is a nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. But she she clearly think, and I also think that good political philosophy. So often the distinction is that political theorists use like history and real world politics in their thinking, and that's the distinction or something like that. But I think good political philosophy also does that. Um, so mm-hmm. I do think we're beginning to get a blurring between the disciplines um, in just in terms of like the kind of work that mm-hmm. political philosophers and theorists are doing. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't think I don't buy her distinction at all. Um, and mm-hmm. I think maybe if I could argue with her about it, <laughs> I would convince her to let me put her in the book. Uh, well, so what do you think about her diagnosis of the rise of totalitarianism? Do you think that our current situation is the result of isolated people, isolated unthinking minds in this kind of way? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think to some extent you can explain it in that way. I mean, what's interesting about the the origins of totalitarianism as a title is a little bit misleading because she doesn't really give us a a cause that will be sort of repeated, right? Mm-hmm. So she doesn't give us like a, a an event that happened and when that event happens, totalitarianism always happens. It's like a very historically informed story that she's telling us through this book, which starts with anti-Semitism, then imperialism, then totalitarianism. So she thinks totalitarianism is a very specific historical event. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I... I don't think I don't think she would say that and I don't think many people would say that the current political situation that we're in is equivalent to totalitarianism but mm-hmm. I think she would say that there are certainly elements of it in everyday political life that exists now so like after she wrote uh, her very controversial book Eichmann in Jerusalem she tried to reply with a essay called um I think truth and politics mm-hmm. and there she she basically said that truth is basically antithetical to politics that pol- truthfulness politics is not a, a virtue and hmm. so trying to get politicians to be truthful is is not something that we should be and she was critiquing this so mm, she see. so she comes she comes from a very particular um viewpoint with regards to who should be thinking and um I, I do think she does a good job of diagnosing the kinds of ways in which we view each other as political beings so 
I mean, I'm talking about, I'll talk about the UK because it's a better mm-hmm. political landscape that I know better. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the way that we view, for instance, as somebody who voted Remain, the, the, the way that we view um, people who voted for Brexit, I think is a very, portrays them as a kind of unthinking thing. As an Ga- gammon, I believe, is the correct term. That <laughs> yeah, use, yeah, right? exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think there isn't anymore the kind of space that allows people with very different opinions and backgrounds to come together and argue with each other without it resulting in these kinds of um, stereotypes to be drawn on. So I mm-hmm. think she'd be very worried about the way that people on opposing sides of the political spectrum view one another. Um, she doesn't really offer any solutions to, to mm. this. She's not a solution-led um, person. So we have mm-hmm. to figure out for ourselves. This is, I mean, this is interesting to me as someone in the sort of left liberal world trying to understand which of the various diagnoses of like the Trump stuff on our side of the pond um, is sort of the most accurate. And I, you know, I've grown increasingly skeptical of the, you know, like the model of these people as being sort of ill-educated and like isolated uh, community wise, because I think you could tell a very different story starting with the Southern strategy in America that says that what actually happened was there hasn't been a, a collapse of white communities. They're still as strong as they were, and they're just trying to remain these kind of isolated and, and in control white communities. And it's nothing to do with them feeling super isolated. It's just to do with them feeling threatened by mm. a future that doesn't prioritize their well-being above everyone else's. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting and and, and right. <laughs> so so the problem the problem with applying Arendt's view or people who sort of appropriate it, I mean, there's loads of think pieces <laughs> that use Arendt um, mm-hmm. in quite a sloppy way that say like, oh, you know, she's totalitarianism arises out of loneliness and look, everybody in these sort of left behind places are really lonely and feel feel threatened mm-hmm. or sad or but I think I think a more accurate I think you're right a more accurate portrayal of it of the kind of white nationalism that we've been seeing over the last populist white nationalism that we've been seeing over the last sort of four or five years is to think of it as a sort of cry because of the loss of power perceived loss of power mm-hmm. um so like Wendy Brown has this amazing book called Ward State's Waning Sovereignty mm-hmm. um which looks at practices of border control um, and in particular when when states erect borders um, like Trump's border wall, southern border wall. Um, Mm -hmm. And she says that they only do it when their power is waning, that when the power of the state is dissipating, it's like a last cry for for um, something. And so I think I think it's a better characterization to see it of as that. I mean, Arendt's, mm-hmm. or people who use Arendt, I should say, maybe maybe the thought is that it would make us feel particularly bad for those groups of people, or that mm-hmm. it portrays a particular subset of society as, as yeah, like left behind or lonely or 
And it's mm-hmm. it's not obvious that that's true for everybody who votes for Trump or Brexit or yeah. yeah. I mean, I think loneliness is an element to it, but it feels to me like sort of it's the loneliness of a siege mentality rather than the loneliness of like single isolated individual. There is some of that, but I feel like there's a lot of this sense of like we're we're lonely because we feel like, um, you know, culture and art is leaving us behind and we're sort of increasingly cut off from um, various forms of cultural capital and things like that. Um, yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned the misuse of of her ideas, and I think probably one of the most famous ideas that she brought into uh, discourse is the banality of evil quote. Um, and I think it's sort of interesting to reflect over the past four years. There has been, in some ways, a kind of banality to it, and in other ways, very much not a banality to it. I'm curious how you sort of understand that quote in light of the past four years. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so the way that I understand it, so the, the the idea of the banality of evil is often sort of misunderstood. So she was using it um, to apply to Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi lieutenant colonel who was responsible for shipping um, mm-hmm. Jewish people to their deaths, essentially. And and she wrote. Eichmann in Jerusalem in response she was she was sent to cover the trial in Jerusalem it was very famous um and and she basically described him as I think she said he wasn't like an Iago or a Macbeth he was like he wasn't an evil mm-hmm. person trying to do evil things and become a villain he just was like an unthinking person and she doesn't mm-hmm. mean like he was an idiot or he was stupid because he wasn't. He was very senior in the army and was responsible um, for a lot of horrible, horrible things. So it was more this idea of he wasn't thinking critically about what he was doing. And Hmm. I think she's very worried about this kind of people just who are bureaucrats or administrators or just doing things because that's what they've been told to do and because it's beneficial to them in some way and Mm -hmm. not really thinking about what's going on. I mean, here it's interesting because you certainly see like, so I used to work in parliament and part of my job there was helping benefit claimants to get through the government process um, of applying for universal credit which is like our social welfare program here and it's been completely um made humanless <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's no there's no opportunity for the benefit claimant to ever speak to another human person um right. everything's done online and when you call if you work in an mp's office you're allowed to ring a hotline and speak to a human Ugh. and 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 i had um obviously read Arendt by by this point and was had done a philosophy degree and was quite critical of all of these sort of big bureaucratic structures and so Mm -hmm. I would be so angry at the people on the other line who saw themselves as just doing their job even though Mm -hmm. what a lot of the time they were doing was denying people money that would allow them to eat or feed their children Um, so I do Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of unthinking um, people in this kind of uncritical way uh, but there are also you know structures that don't allow them to be critical and so I do think she got something right in that mm-hmm. um, whether whether or not she was right sort of 
describing Eichmann in that way is another mm -hmm. question, but she certainly tapped into something that was really interesting and helpful to think about. Yeah, and I think that is very important, especially as we are sort of detoxing from the Trump era of bolsterous totalitarian, you know, bolsterous fasciness to like recognize yeah. that, you know, the bureaucracy is often where the most suffering is created. Mm -hmm. um, so what would you say is the impact of her gender on her philosophical career? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because at the same time as being angry for me, angry at me, for calling her a philosopher. She'd probably be extra angry that I put her in a book about women philosophers. Um, so there's a really good interview with Arendt about, uh, called Zur Person. Sorry, mm -hmm. any German speaking people. Um, it's all in German, but you can get it on YouTube with the English subtitles and it's her and this guy and they're both smoking and drinking whiskey. Um, mm -hmm. It's an hour long. And he begins by saying like, oh, this, it's the first time we've had a lady philosopher on the um, show. Can mm. you tell me what being a lady philosopher is like? Oh and, she, and she sort of goes, um, hang on a minute. I'm paraphrasing hugely, mainly because I don't speak German. But she's like, hang on a minute. Firstly, I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> first point, why she'd be angry with me. And second, like uh, be, me being a woman doesn't have any impact on anything. Um, she also has, interestingly, she says something like, oh, um, she says philosophy is not a masculine profession. That need not mean that it does, it remains a masculine profession, which mm -hmm. is often quoted as Aaron, what Aaron said. But then she, the next sentence is, there might be a woman philosopher one day. So she, she clearly presumed that there hadn't been any um, by this point in like the 60s or, or 70s. Um, <laughs> Mm -hmm. But yeah, so she she also she was asked a question once at Yale. She was giving a lecture, and um, somebody asked her what it's like to be a woman professor, and she said, um, "I don't really think." I think she said, "I'm." She said, "I'm not disturbed at all about being a woman professor because I'm quite used to being a woman." Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she clearly just didn't think that it had any impact um, on her. Her or life. at least she was performing the role of um, rejecting the idea that they had those kinds yeah. of impacts because she didn't want to be seen those ways, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like yeah. from, from what I gather, she I think... had some relationships with some male philosophers <laughs> that have been uh, <laughs> impactful in the way that she has been perceived in her life. Yes. I mean, she's only ever... I mean, this is what's interesting about writing the book is somebody was really annoyed with me for not talking more about Heidegger in the chapter mm -hmm, about Aaron. Mm -hmm. And and obviously usually she's only ever referenced as some some person who had a relationship with this other guy. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, she's but that's, you know, part of being a woman philosopher in history, I think, because you are recognized as a wife or partner as as a of a more significant male philosopher. And she was certainly um certainly portrayed in that way yeah lou and i i don't know if y'all have had a chance and you're over the course of this ridiculous semester to watch any of queen's gambit but we've been watching that and one of the the amusing takeaways is that i'm i mean you have to imagine that in the philosophy world women like this would be you know having similar experiences of just like constantly being getting attention as woman in this kind of space 
Um, so yeah, yeah. what mm-hmm. one of the things that Lisa and I found, which might portray this well, is that the book, whilst we're very happy with the reception it's had, one of the interesting things that has happened since it's been in bookshops is that overwhelmingly it's put in the feminism or women's section and not the philosophy section. Um, mm-hmm. And the book has like a feminist ethos, of course, and we're both feminists, but it's not a book about feminism or feminists. Right. In fact, lots of the women in the book weren't feminists. And so it's this interesting way in which even though like women in philosophy are sort of siloed into this women corner, Mm-hmm. Um, and you often get this in modules, like in political philosophy, where you get like, like one week on feminism, and that's mm-hmm. the week when you get all the women, and, then, right. and you never see them um, in the, in the rest of the course. So, yeah, I think I haven't seen Queen's Gambit, although I've seen everybody tweeting about it. So maybe I need to. Get you on. know, it's fun when you're when you get on break again. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's that's a that's disheartening because it feels like. You know, if I think about human behavior and the people that I want to be picking up this book, they're going to be looking in the philosophy section because they're looking for like a basic philosophy book, maybe to get for someone for a gift. And they might not know to like go look in the feminist section for a book like this. It's it's also frustrating because it means it's mostly the it's the same bookshop that Lisa went to to Mm -hmm. see if there are any books about women philosophers that's sort of doing this. And so it means it hasn't quite come full circle because mm-hmm. the book still isn't in philosophy um, department. Some some bookshops are doing it, I have to say. Blackwell's in Oxford. Okay, well, I mean, very that, nice to us. Yeah. That, um, that gets on to what I wanted to sort of chat about as we start to wind down here a little bit is sort of moving forward. I'm curious, first of all, as I could tell, as far as I can tell, you didn't talk about every single woman philosopher in the history. I think there are at least one or two left. If you were going to do a second book, um, which philosopher ladies would you potentially include in volume two? Um, maybe Lisa, you want to jump back in? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Rebecca and I get very antsy when we have to think about it. I think. <laughs> oh, you don't like this I question, think... eh? A book two, huh? <laughs> I think it's partly because we're still scarred from when we did the first book and understandably, which is really good in a way because it showed that people were invested, but we very frequently got the question, oh, why didn't you include X? Mm-hmm. Um, in the book and um, our response is partly to say well obviously there are so many and we didn't kind of try to create an encyclopedia our hope was that we'd be kind of silence some of the critics who potentially would have said there are no women philosophers worth reading about um, but I think we'd be cautious about ever pretending to do an exhaustive, uh, mm-hmm. exhaustive book um, but in terms of who if in a hypothetical world um, we were to do a second one um, I think it's a really tricky question. I think in hindsight, I think Rebecca and I are very conscious that the women we included, whilst I think we did well in some respects in regards to the kind of diversity, there are definitely some areas that maybe we'd want to highlight. So for example, we don't have any um, South American philosophers in the book um, and mm-hmm. quite a few people have suggested names of people that they would want us to to include. So I think that's definitely something that we would want to do some further research into. Um, I think from a personal perspective if I had to pick um, a woman um, I think I think maybe someone like Philippa Foote so we do Mm -hmm. discuss some of the women who are considered part of the Oxford Four um, quotation marks um, in the book we actually include the other three Um, however obviously Philippa Foote being credited as 
basically being the inventor of the trolley problem and how central that's become, not just to moral philosophy, but also to almost philosophy culture, I guess, mm-hmm. um, as a phenomenon. Um, even trolley problems memes um, being a, a big thing now that exists. I think it would be quite interesting to look a bit more at her life and work and potentially the work that she did that kind of culminated in this thought experiment, which I would argue is potentially going to define almost an era of more philosophy. Yeah, I would certainly love to see lots more about Foote as someone who also is sympathetic to the virtue ethics turn in in that world. Um, I think it's really interesting in particular how folks like her and and Iris Murdoch and stuff like that played such an important role in um, what I see as the the, uh, rescuing of uh, ethics from the endless debates between deontologists and utilitarians. Mm, yes no i i very much agree what about you rebecca who would you uh who would you throw to the wolves for this question um yeah i feel so i think the separate question of like who i'd like to include so i really wanted to get um we tried to get somebody to write about nana asmu who is a pre-colonial nigerian um philosopher um so i'd be desperate for somebody else to write about her and then in terms of who would probably be my preference would be Judith um, Schlar, who mm. would be another person who would be incredibly annoyed to be included in the book, which I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she, was a, she was a political theorist, a professor of government at Harvard University at the same time as John Rawls and Robert Nozick. Um, mm. And she was, she was very sceptical of the kinds of systems building approaches that Rawls and Nozick have in political philosophy and of centering justice and the good. And she instead kind of argues that you should center injustice and the bad. So she has this really famous essay called The Liberalism of Fear, um, mm. which, is a, which is just a fantastic paper. And I think people know her for that, but don't know enough about her other work, which is really um, exceptional. So she'd probably be my my favorite to go in the next one nice that sound really fascinating um i suppose if i was gonna toss in someone for a suggestion since y'all mentioned that you were uh trying to to look for more diversity folks that uh someone who i've read quite a bit this semester in my critical theory courses has been uh, mohanti i don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with her she she wrote a paper under western eye she's a non-western feminist who's very critical of like white western feminism as being dominating of the the, the feminist discourse so i imagine something like that could be fascinating as well for those for your work yeah that would be great i mean i think that i think the thing about the book that we if we were to do another one we mm-hmm. we still we tried but still didn't get to represent the full breadth of the work that women in philosophy do because doing that would be like writing a book about all of philosophy ever sure. <laughs> um so so yeah, yeah. couldn't knock so, that out uh, on next to your phd programs that no. seems like a, like an no, easy thing no, to we're not ac grading or whatever no we couldn't so um let me ask you then sort of final questions here i'm curious since we've talked about the role that gender played in the lives of all of uh, these people 
if have you reflected at all in your experiences so far as lady philosophers how your <laughs> gender has impacted your experiences and also i mean related to that what are ways in which you feel like we could make philosophy more whatever it needs to be for lady philosophers whether you coach that as you know inviting or um you know epistemically equitable like what do we what do we need to be working on do you feel like just recovering from the lady philosopher for it. Hey, y'all started it. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> using your language. Other, other people have spontaneously called us that before. So, the lady yeah. philosophers. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean it 100% ironically. It was somebody at our publisher, I'm pretty sure, called it a book about lady philosophers. And I Amazing. fully eye-rolled him. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, it's a really good question. I think one thing that I've been thinking about quite a lot, and it obviously goes back to, because essentially part of the purpose of the book is to encourage more women to see themselves as having the potential to be a quote kind of great philosopher. And I think it's, at least for me, that prompts some reflection around the kind of function of representation and the impact that that can have. And I think from a purely personal perspective and also speaking from a position of a lot of privilege, obviously being um, a white woman having studied philosophy, I think I definitely found when studying it that I, no matter how well I potentially did academically, it never crossed my mind that it was something that I could actually seriously pursue for a career. Um, and I wonder how much of that is linked to this fact that other people just, in virtue of the fact that they're men, just seem to have, I don't know, that it had a certain kind of credibility in philosophical debates and discussions that sometimes I definitely kind of questioned for myself. And I do worry the extent to which for kind of other women and other people from marginalised groups who are even worse, have even worse representation within philosophy departments, the impact that that has for their kind of progression um, within the discipline. Um, so that's something that I've been reflecting on a little bit. I think for me, another question uh, or another thing that I found is I struggled with kind of the wider outreach of philosophy and it's why I'm really interested in kind of public philosophy um, but it's ultimately the reason why I didn't really and I wouldn't even necessarily consider myself to be a philosopher which is potentially interesting as well mm. um, but I kind of turned my career I guess a bit more towards kind of research and public policy but still with a very intense kind of interest in philosophy um, and whether we do need to think more about how we can use philosophy to engage people in discussions about the world in ways that feel kind of tangible to them and through them really show them the how interesting and rewarding philosophy can be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Rebecca, did you have anything you want to add? Um, yeah, I mean, my experience was, I like, like Lisa, we're, we're both very lucky um, to have sort of we've had great teachers people who have always supported us and told us that we were we were good enough to do philosophy at sort of postgraduate level but I don't think he's like Lisa said neither of us ever really believed them um hmm. and I mean part of that is the reason why I ended up not really doing philosophy of mind or epistemology the stuff I really wanted to do because I just didn't think that I would was good enough to do mm -hmm. it and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that nobody else <laughs> was was I couldn't see any other women doing it um 
Mm-hmm. Of course, there are lots of women who do it um, and do it amazingly well, but they're not. I mean, I thought Hilary Putnam was a um, a woman for for ages. We all did. Um, that's that's standard. Yeah, <laughs> and then was furious. Yeah, that was a big <laughs> day for me. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's so hard, especially like in the modern setting where nobody succeeds at being a philosopher anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah, how do you how do you distinguish right your anxiety about not succeeding as a lady <laughs> philosopher versus just not succeeding as like everyone else in the world? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I I do, and I'm having this kind of existential dread at the moment because I'm applying for postdocs, um, mm-hmm. which means I'm just receiving like at least one rejection a week, which mm-hmm. is very humbling. Um, but it's also quite intimidating in terms of like, oh, I probably won't, you know, have a full-time job until I'm like 40 or something. Um, but other, otherwise, I think like the problem is the discourse around women in philosophy has always been about reading lists mm-hmm. and really reading, improving your reading list is probably one, a good and important thing, but maybe one of the most like <laughs> benign things that you can do to support women in in your institutions um so i guess my argument would be that yes obviously we need to do the work of making sure that what we're learning is representative and um Mm -hmm. better than better than we're doing now but we Mm. also need to do the work in other places and i think philosophers maybe are particularly bad surprisingly at being self-critical um, mm. of the ways in which they interact with um, women, but also other um, minority groups in their departments mm-hmm. and how they can do better to support um, support people. So I do think we need to move, move on and move quickly, I think, in doing some more radical stuff. Yeah, and I agree that we are well trained at being the best at being the worst at doing exactly that. So, uh, Lisa, did you have any final thoughts before we shift over to the enlightening round? Yeah, I think one uh, final thought, and it's it's less to do with what what to do, but I do think it's quite important. I think that when Rebecca and I put this book together, we definitely found that there was a little bit of kind of gatekeeping, I guess, over what who is worthy of the philosopher title and kind of what constitutes philosophy. So there are women that we included, I take, for example, Angela Davis or even Iris Murdoch, where people would be like, they shouldn't be included. They're not, quote, real philosophers. So, yeah, we, we did get people kind of questioning those kind of inclusions, um, I guess. And Mm-hmm. I think for Rebecca and I, we obviously were, were thoughtful about the women that we included and we, we had kind of good reasons for why we thought they were kind of valid of that title. And I think it just raised a question for us over um, kind of why there was so much more hesitancy around referring to someone like Iris Murdoch as a philosopher, but not someone like Albert Camus, who kind of similarly wrote most mm-hmm. of his philosophy through his fiction. Um, so I think that maybe we do need to just be more open-minded um, in terms of, how we think about philosophy and kind of question whether our ideas about what counts as good philosophy um, is in some way uh, gendered um, or whether there are certain assumptions that we've built into those ideas um, that have potentially stemmed from um, certain ideas we have about who counts and who doesn't. 
Yeah, I definitely think there's some gendered gatekeeping going on there. And it's super baffling to me because I take the sort of maximally inclusive definition of philosophy, right? If you've if you've listened to this entire episode, I'm sorry to inform you, you're a philosopher. It's too late. Um, so like, yeah, if, as long as you're thinking hard about issues, I feel like you're already in the category. So I think that's mm -hmm. it is weird that women in particular like Iris Murdoch are, are kept out in that kind of way. Okay, so that was a lot of fascinating material, and now, unfortunately, I have to torture you both. Uh, oh, so, for folks who are not familiar, this is the Enlightening Round. Enlightenment comes from within. Uh, the way this works is I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me are those things real or not real. Those are your only options. You do not get to define what real means. You do not get to hedge. There is no middle ground here. Uh, this is our first time putting two people through the enlightening round at the same time. So we have decided to keep a consistent order. And Rebecca has graciously agreed to be the first respondent on each thing. So you can... Y'all can philosophize after the fact, which was the worst position to be in here. But, uh, are you ready? Yeah. This is good, as cause, as this is good cause drama. <laughs> let's as make some drama. Yeah. I'm so excited. All right. So let's prime y'all. Is anything real? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Yes. Are colors real? Yep. Yes. Phenomenal consciousness? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Free will? Yes. No. <laughs> Selves or persons? Yes. Yes. Genders? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Races. Oh, now I want to define what real is. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. It's too late now. Y yes. Yes. Species. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Morality. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow, y'all are y'all are tight. Uh, rights. Oh, I think yes, yes. Wait, was that rights? Yes, rights. No. Oh my oh. god. <laughs> Knowledge. Yes. Yes. God or gods? <laughs> no. No. Society. Yes. Yes. Money? Yes. No. Mm -hmm. Numbers? <laughs> yes. Yes. Fictional characters? No. No. Holes, like a hole in the ground? And this is like my first year metaphysics class. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Chairs. Yes. Yes. Sandwiches. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just got to get you on the record here. Science. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
Sorry, could you repeat it? Science. Yes. Natural laws. No. Lisa, natural laws. (laughs) (laughs) My answer is so inconsistent. Um, No. Mm, Beauty. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, uh, Yes. Yes. Love. Oh, God. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. Causality. Yes. Yes. And finally, time. Yes. Yes. Okay. Wow. How do you feel? <laughs> Y'all were really close on that one. Stressed. <laughs> Stressed, eh? Yeah. That, that is incredibly difficult. Harder than I was expecting. <laughs> it's weird, right? It's like you, you get into it and then like you realize how unbelievably painful it actually is halfway through. Yeah, yeah you realize that the, the metric that you used on one just completely contradicts all of the rest of them. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. To, uh, it's interesting that y'all were, I think, apart only on rights and I think money may have been the only. Oh, and um, free will. That was for the three, right? Yeah. Oh, free will, Lisa. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have made a very long debate about this this evening. <laughs> Just trying to stir up some uh, shit for fans' sake, you know? I know yeah, they like fine. that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yep so well rebecca lisa this has been a lot of fun i really appreciate it do you want to let folks know where they can find your materials one more time uh yeah so well we have a website the philosopher queens.co.uk but the philosopher queens is available from all good bookshops hopefully and buy it from your local independent bookshop and not from amazon <laughs> yeah we're both on twitter as well yeah. yes yeah what are y'all's twitter handles uh, mine's just Rebecca Buxton. Okay. And mine's Lisa Whiting underscore. Great. And we'll have that all in the show notes as well. So thank you all so much. This has been a lot of fun and, and good luck with the second book that you're not writing and um, <laughs> with surviving the semester and everything. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, 
please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void and the void is you. 